Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm Dana Auguster, and this is the place where we put a historical spin on current events, headlines, as well as celebrate the anniversaries of the greatest sports moments in history. This week, we're going to take a look at five baseball parks that was built during this week in history, which have become shrines to that game. Also, in the shout-out portion of our show, we're going to talk about the only team not named the Boston Celtics to win a championship during the decade of the 1960s, as well as have our usual top five with some of the greatest moments in sports history, which included a team that rallied from a three-games-to-nothing deficit to win the Stanley Cup, and another team that quite nearly did the same thing in the NBA. But right now, without further ado, here's this week's main event. Hello, welcome back to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and right now in this week's main event, we're going to talk about five Major League Baseball parks that opened during the course of this week in history that dates back to the dead ball era of baseball where runs and home runs, for that matter, were very, very few, but at the same time, it was a premium on hitting, place hitting, as well as speed and defense. One of the b- b- ballparks that we're going to talk about in this week's show has kind of gotten lost in history of the great ballpark that was located in New York City. Of course, in Brooklyn, you had Ebbets Field, which was the site of Jackie Robinson coming to the majors. You also had a lot of great teams, a lot of great characters to grace the, the stands and the field at Ebbets Field. You also have the Polo Grounds, which was a site of so many great baseball moments as well as football moments if you talk about, you know, the football in New York City. 
Not only that, you also had Shea Stadium in Queens, which was the home of the Mets before they moved to City Field, which was right across the parking lot from Shea. And also, to say the least, you have Yankee Stadium, which was the home of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio. And that pretty much was the centerpiece of baseball parks in New York City. But we're not talking about any of those today. Today, we're going to, the first one we're going to talk about is the home of the Yankees home prior to Yankee Stadium, which was a place called Hilltop Park, located in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City. And it was a home of the Yankees just between 1903 and 1912. This was even predated them being known as the Yankees because back then they were known as the Highlanders. Because the park was located on a ridge in Manhattan Island, it became known as Hilltop Park because it sat on a hill. And that was the inspiration of their nickname, the Highlanders, which they kept until 1912. And then when they moved to the Polo Grounds, thanks to some sports writers, changed the name to the New York Yankees. The park was located in northern Manhattan and consisted of a covered grandstand uh, stretching from the first baseline along the first base to, to third base, and uncovered bleacher sections down the right and left field lines. It was originally built in just six weeks, for, and it just sat right at 16,000 fans, with standing room for an additional 10,000 that actually stood against the fence in the outfield and along the foul lines. That's what, back then, that's where the standing room was, on the field. The team was actually, when it was founded in 1901, was actually known as the Baltimore Orioles. Not that Orioles team, but this Orioles team only lasted a couple of years. And they moved to New York City in 1903 when Frank J. Farrell and former New York City police chief William Devery bought the franchise for only $18,000, which in today's money was $512,000. Imagine buying the New York Yankees for a half a million just keep that in consideration when the park opened it wasn't really a great park actually the right field was constantly full of water and the outfield grass really didn't grow all that well and it wasn't really that big of a deal because the yankees or highlanders wasn't really a great team to begin with but the lasting moment of that ballpark actually happened on may 15th 1912 after being heckled for several innings Detroit Tiger star Ty Cobb leaped into a leap defense and attacked a handicapped fan who was hurling racial insults at him. He was suspended indefinitely by the league by league president Ben Johnson, but his suspension was was just reduced to ten days and fifty dollars. The Tigers actually went on a one game strike to protest the suspension, but rather than forfeit the next game. The Tigers played the Philadelphia A's with a lineup of college students and, you know, just walk-ons, and they got blasted by the highly and very powerful uh, Philadelphia A's at that time. Another park that is very, very familiar to uh, sports fans and baseball fans alike is, of course, Fenway Park in Boston. That park was built in 1912 and is the oldest active Major League Baseball park still active. Because of its age and its constrained location in Boston's dense Fenway-Kenwood area, the park had been renovated and expanded many, many times, resulting in some of its quirkiest and strange setup that you would find in a baseball, which adds to its character and its uniqueness. 
You got Pesky's pole. You have the triangle in center field. And of course, you have the green monster in left field. All of that was because of its location and its proximity to streets and buildings around the park. It is one of the, it is one of the smallest. That's actually the fifth smallest ballpark in Major League Baseball with a seating capacity just under 40,000. Fenway has hosted the World Series 11 times with Boston winning six of them and actually the Boston Braves actually winning one there in 1914. Besides baseball games, it's also been the site of so many other sporting and cultural events, including pro football games with the Boston Redskins, the Boston Yanks, and the New England Patriots. Concerts, soccer, hockey games was there. So, you know, for example, the 2010 Winter Classic was held at, um, at Fenway Park with other political and religious events taking place there as well. In 1911... The Red Sox were still playing at a place called the Old Huntington Avenue Grounds, and owner John Taylor purchased the land bordering Brookline Avenue, Jersey Street, Van Ness Street, and Lansdowne Street, and developed it into a larger baseball stadium for the, for the Red Sox, which later became Fenway Park. Now, Taylor claimed that Fenway, the name Fenway Park, came from its location in the Fenway neighborhood of Boston, which was partially created by filling in marshland, which at which in that area of Boston was called the Fens, to create Back Bay Fens Urban Park. However, given that Taylor's family also owned the Fenway Realty Company, the promotional value of naming of naming the time had been cited as well. You know, like many ballparks, Fenway was constructed on an asymmetrical block with consequent asymmetry to the field dimensions. The park was designed by James E. McLaughlin and contracted with Charles Logue Building Company. The first game there was actually played on April 20th, 1912, with John F. Fitzgerald throwing out the first pitch. John F. Fitzgerald is actually related to later President John F. Kennedy. Boston defeated the New York Highlanders, the aforementioned team, Seven to six in 11 innings and newspaper coverage of the opening wasn't really all that much because a couple of days earlier was the sinking of the Titanic. The park has many distinctive features, as you well know, that makes Fenway one of the most unique and quirky stadiums in all of baseball. One of the many features of the park was installed in 1934, which was the manual scoreboard down at the bottom of the big, huge left field fence. Uh, is a hand-operated scoreboard, and also and it features lights and to indicate balls and strikes, which in the 1930s was actually considered cutting-edge cutting-edge technology. Um, the scoreboard was updated by is still updated by hand today from behind the wall. National League scores were removed in 1976, but was placed back as part of the permanent part of the scoreboard in 2003. Fenway added lights in 1947 and they were the third to last team out of 16 major league teams at the time to have lights at their ballpark. Another distinctive feature was a place called Williamsburg, which was a name invented by sports writers for the bullpen area in front of the right field center bleachers in 1940. It was built there primarily to benefit Ted Williams to enable him and other left-handed batters to hit more home runs since it was 23 feet closer than the bleacher wall. Fenway's bullpen wall has is much lower than most outfield walls. Uh, outfielders were known to end up flying over the wall when chasing balls hit in that direction. 
For example, everybody remembers game two of the 2013 American League Championship Series when Torrey Hunter, when chasing the David Ortiz game-time grand slam, flipped over the wall. And you could see the policeman in the back of raising his hands in triumph because of, in celebration because David Ortiz grand slam tied the game. Perhaps the most famous feature of the ballpark is, of course, the Green Monster. It's, it's a 37-foot fence that's located in left field and is only 310 to 315 feet from home plate, which is the shortest distance in baseball and it often benefits right-handed hitters. Part of the original ballpark construction of 1912 was actually was made of wood, but was covered in tin and concrete. And in 1934, the scoreboard was added. The wall was covered in hard plastic in 1976. The scoreboard is still manually updated, as I said. And inside the walls of the Green Monster, players have come by and signed their names over the years. Despite its name, the Green Monster was not painted green until 1947. Before that, it was covered with advertisements, advertising everything from shoe polish to underwear to whatever have you, which was in vogue back in the 1940s. The monster's designation is relatively new, but for most of its history, it was just simply known as the wall. In 2003, they added the terrestrial seating on top of the wall, which is something that I want to experience personally myself before it's all said and done. Another distinctive feature of Fenway is, of course, the triangle. Is a region of center field where the walls form a triangle whose far corner is 420 feet from home plate. That deep right center point is conventionally given as the center field, center field distance, but the true center field of Fenway is unmarked. It's roughly 390 to 390 feet from home plate, and it's to the left of the triangle when you're viewing it from home plate as a batter. There's one red seat in the right field bleachers, which is section 42, row 37, seat 21, which signifies the longest home run ever hit at Fenway Park. That home run hit by Ted Williams was on June 9, 1946, and was officially measured at 502 feet, which was well beyond Williamsburg. According to Hit Tracker Online, if the ball was unobstructed, it would have flown an incredible 520 to 535 feet. Another and last uh, distinct feature of the ballpark is something called Pesky's Pole, which is the right field, which was the foul pole down the right field foul line, which stands only 302 feet from home plate, the shortest outfield distance in Major League Baseball, either right or left field. Like the measurement of the left field line at Fenway, it has been disputed. Aerial shots show that it was noticeably shorter than the actual 302-foot line in right field. And Johnny Pesky himself, which was the longtime shortstop of the Red Sox, has said that it's around 295 feet. So despite the, despite the short wall and home runs in the area relatively rare, the fence curves away from the foul pole sharply. And the pole is named, of course, like I said, after Johnny Pesky, who was a shortstop and also a coach for the Red Sox. He owned who sit some of his six home runs at Fenway was right around this pole, but never off the pole. Now, Fenway Park is one of those ballparks that I've always wanted to visit. This next one I actually visited, and that's Wrigley Field in Chicago. Wrigley Field is, a, is located on the north side of Chicago and is the home of the Chicago Cubs, one of the two cities teams that 
play in Major League Baseball. The Cubs and, of course, the White Sox are the other one. The stadium first opened in 1914 at a place called Wigman Park, named after Charles Wigman of the Chicago Whales of the Federal League, which folded after the 1915 season. The Cubs wouldn't play their first home game at the park until two years later in 1916 when they defeated the Cincinnati Reds 7-6 in 11 innings. The they changed the name to Wrigley Field in 1927, naming it after the chewing gum magnate Charles Wrigley Jr. You know, in between that, it was known as Cubs Park and as various other names. But Wrigley Field actually became the official name in 1927. The park is located in the north side of Chicago in an area called Lakeview in the Wrigleyville, Wrigleyville neighborhood and is located, of course, on another irregular block bounded by Clark and Addison Streets to the west and south and Waverland and Sheffield Avenues to the north and east. Wrigley Field is nicknamed the Friendly Confines, a phrase that was popularized by Ernie Banks, who was famously quoted as saying another thing and was affectionately nicknamed Mr. Cub. It is the second oldest ballpark in the majors, of course, after Fenway, and is the only remaining ballpark that was once used in the Federal League. Wrigley Field is known worldwide for, of course, its ivy-covered brick walls, its unusual wind patterns off of Lake Michigan, the iconic red marquee over the main entrance, and the hands and the manual scoreboard in center field. Between 1921 and 1970, it was also the home field of the Chicago Bears of the National Football League and for a very short time, only seven years, for the Chicago Cardinals. Now, baseball executive Charles Wigman hired architect Zachary Taylor Davis to design the park, which was ready for baseball for the Federal League's opening day. The Wales was actually was a, a pretty good team in the Federal League and actually won the league championship in 1915. But when the team retired, when the Wales went out of business and folded, the Cubs owner was looking for a good, looking for another place to play because they were playing at another, at an old dilapidated, um, place called, um, I think it was Capital Line Grounds, I believe it was. And they played there for a number of years and they decided, you know, it's time for us to get another place. And they decided to leave that place and go to Wrigley, Wigman Field, which later became Wrigley. And of course became one of the most legendary ballparks in all of baseball. The park has famous, of course, for its outfield wall covered in ivy. And also there's several ground rules that deal with that, uh, with, with that ballpark dealing with the wall. Um, the ivy itself is, they planted it during the 1930s. And the, with some of the ground rules of the ball gets into the ivy and gets stuck, the bat is awarded a ground rule double. And outfielders often raise their arms up when the goal, ball goes into the ivy and just disappears. And I've seen that happen on a number of occasions watching Cubs games over the years. The Cubs, another distinctive thing about Wrigley Field was the fact that it went for the longest time without lights. They didn't get lights at Wrigley Field until 1988. Now, I was in high school then, and I remember watching the first night baseball game there. Uh, this was in 1988. And they would have hold out for decades, not installing lights there until 88. And the reason why, because baseball said that if you don't have lights at this stadium, that we're all, every postseason game you play, well, you have to play it on the road. And one of the things that they had to do was they had to install lights to have a postseason game in Wrigley Field. 
So that was one of the main reasons. Because if they didn't, they would have to play home baseball games at St. Louis, which was their main arch rival. But they got it, and from then on, they've had a lot of amazing moments, especially at night playing at Wrigley Field with the infant, you know, one that comes to mind automatically is the infamous Bartman incident with the, the, the foul, with the, the fan reaching over and obstructing Moises Alou of a foul ball doing, uh, the, the 2003 American League, National League Championship Series against the Marlins. But, there was Cubs Park or Wrigley Field, as you know, but there was another stadium not too far from uh, Wrigley Field that stand that stood the test of time and was recently, well, not too long ago, torn down. And that was a place called Naven Field that when it opened. But everybody, all baseball fans, remember it as Tiger Stadium. Tiger Stadium, also known as Naven Field, and during that time it was also known as Briggs Stadium, located in the Corktown neighborhood of Detroit. And it hosted the Detroit Tigers of Major League Baseball from 1912 to 1999, as well as the Detroit Lions of the NFL from 1938 to 1974. The stadium was nicknamed The Corner for its location on Michigan Avenue and Trumbull Avenue. In 1911, new Tigers owner Frank Navin ordered a new steel and concrete ballpark on the same site of a place called Bennett Park that would seat 23,000 people, which was a growing number of Tiger fans at the turn of the 20th century. Navenfield opened on April 20th, 1912, which is incidentally the same day Fenway Park opened. While constructed on the same site as Bennett Park, the diving at Navenfield was actually rotated 90 degrees with home plate located in what had been left field at Bennett Park. The Cleveland Indians player Shoeless Joe Jackson later banned for baseball for a lot for following the Black Sox scandal. Um, scored the very first run at Tiger Stadium. It has a couple. Tiger Stadium had a couple of distinct features, including a 125 foot tall flagpole that was in play, that was in the field of play. So a long drive to center field, center fielders would have to negotiate to find out where the ball was and remember where that foul pole was. It was right and left of dead center field near the 440 foot mark on the fence. That same flagpole was supposed to be brought to New Comerica Park, but it never happened. A new flagpole in the spirit of Tiger Stadium pole was positioned in fair play at Comerica Park, paying homage to Tiger Stadium. And until the fences were moved closer in the, right before the uh, 2003 regular season. When the park was expanded in 1936, a second deck was added over the right field pavilion and the bleachers to fit as many people as possible in the stadium. The result of that was an overhang, which the second deck actually hung over the field of play. And occasionally it would turn some extremely high arc fly balls into home runs. And lights were added above the lights were added right above the warning track to illuminate the area beneath the overhang to to aid eight uh, eight outfielders. Uh, due due to then owner Walter Briggs' dislike of night baseball, lights wasn't installed in the stadium until right around 1948. And the first night game in the stadium was held on June 15, 1948. Among major league ballparks whose construction predated the advent of night games, only Wrigley Field went longer without lights. Tiger Stadium, as I said, was the home of the Detroit Lions from 1938 to 1974, right before they moved to Pontiac in the Silverdome. 
the stadium hosted two NFL championship games in 1953 and again in 1957. The football field ran mostly in the outfield version of the park from the left field, from the right field line to the left center field parallel with third baseline. The benches for both the Lions and their opponents was on the outfield side of the field. The Lions played their final game at Tiger Stadium on Thanksgiving Day 1974 against Denver. Uh, the stadium hosted the 41, 51, and 71 Major League All-Star games, and all three featured home runs. In 1941, Ted Williams hit, the, hit a walk-off three-run home run at Tiger Stadium to give the American League a victory, as well as 1971 Reggie Jackson's titanic drive off to the right field uh Lights and which actually hit the, the transform on top of the stadium off of Doc Ellis, and it hits. And it was just a titanic shot that you've seen over and over again when Reggie Jackson was a member of the Oakland A's. Uh, Tiger Stadium also witnessed, you know, a lot of Tiger victories. Most notably in my lifetime, watching the Tigers defeat the San Diego Padres in the 1984 World Series. I remember that series very well as the Tigers was just a heavily favored team. They started that year with a record of 35 and 5 and was regarded one of the greatest teams in the history of Major League Baseball. Finally, the last team, the last stadium that we're going to talk about is a stadium called League Park, which was located in Cleveland. It's the last of the old school ballparks that this, that they opened this week and is situated at the northeast corner of 66th Street and Lexington Avenue and was actually the original structure was built in 1891 as a wood structure, but it was rebuilt of concrete and steel in 1910. Although Cleveland Stadium opened in 1932, it had a much larger seating capacity and better access by car. League Park was actually continued to be used by the Indians through the 1946 season, mainly for weekday games. Weekend games and games expecting larger crowds and night games was going to be held at Cleveland Stadium. Most of League Park's structure was demolished in 1951, although some remnants still remain even to this day, including the original ticket office, which was built in 1909. The park was rebuilt, again, like, in, like I said, in 1910 as a concrete and steel stadium, one of two open to open that year in the American League, the other one being Comiskey Park in Chicago, the home of the longtime home of the White Sox. The park, the new park seated over 18,000 people, more than doubling the seating capacity of its predecessor. On April, it opened on April 21st, 1910, with a 5-0 loss to the Tigers in front of 18,000 fans in a game that was started by Cy Young himself. The final Indians game that was at League Park was played on Saturday, September 21st, a 5-3 loss in 11 innings to the Detroit Tigers, only in front of 2,722 fans. League Park became the last stadium used in Major League Baseball to have never installed permanent lights. The highlights of that stadium was, of course, the 1920 World Series in which the Indians claimed their first world championship. And they included a few firsts that I found very interesting. They played the Brooklyn Dodgers, and in the bottom of the first inning of Game 1, Cleveland right-handed Elmer Smith hit the first Grand Slam home run in the the history of the World Series. And also in the bottom of the first fourth inning in that very same game, Cleveland pitcher Jim Bagby became the first pitcher to hit a home run in the World Series game. On April 12, 1920, 
the Cleveland Indians would win their first World Series, defeating the Brooklyn Dodgers in Game 7, but by a final score of 3 to nothing. So thus, that's the rundown of the five classic ballparks that opened this week in Major League Baseball. Hope you enjoyed it. And right now, we're going to head right into this week's top five, featuring a couple of teams that overcame huge deficits. One was successful, yet one of them wasn't. We'll be right back. Hello, welcome back to the show. And before we get on with the rest of the show, one sign that we are definitely growing here at the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, as well as the Sports History Network as a whole, is we have a sponsor, and that sponsor is newspapers.com. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like me. And if you're into sports history, you really do need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from U.S., from Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and more, dating back from 1898 all the way up to yesterday. Get a free one-week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you'll be also helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to... This week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. So right now, we're going to go into this week's top five, which are the top five moments in the history of sports that took place during this week throughout history. Number five is goes back to 1876 and in 1901. In 1876, the Boston Red Stockings defeated the Philadelphia Athletics 6-5 at the Jefferson Street Grounds in Philadelphia. Why is that so significant? It was the very first game in the history of the National League. The Boston Red Stockers was basically made up of players that was holdovers from the original very first pro baseball team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, but most of that team had moved over to Boston as part of the newly formed National League. Now, the Boston Red Stockings still exist to this day. Now they're known as the Atlanta Braves. And that team defeated the, the, the Philadelphia Athletics 6-5 to at Jefferson Street Grounds. Also, in 1901, since we had the birth of the National League, we also now have the birth of the American League, which happened 25 years later, almost to the day. When the Chicago White Stockings, obviously the White Sox, they defeated the Cleveland Blues, now known as the Cleveland Indians, 8-2 to to begin the American League. So number five was the creation and the very first games of the American League and the National League. Number four, this week in 1942, the Toronto Maple Leafs defeated the Detroit Red Wings 
four games to three in the best-of-seven Stanley Cup final. It was the first series in major pro sports history to see a team down three games to none in a seven-game series to come back and win the series. The Maple Leafs defeated the Red Wings 3-1 to in Game 7. It has happened a few other times in the history of the Stanley Cup, but it's only happened once in Major League Baseball in the famous Yankees, Red Sox, National League, American League Championship Series, excuse me, in 2004. It has never happened in the NBA. Keep that in mind as we continue here. Number three, this week in 1966, Bill Russell was named head coach of the Boston Celtics. The Celtics, fresh after their eighth consecutive World Championship hires Bill Russell to replace the retiring Red Arbach. A reporter asked Arbach if he had any advice for Russell. Arbach simply said, win. And Russell did win. Not only did he becoming the first African-American coach of a major pro sports franchise, but he did so in dramatic fashion and he had very success. He had a large amount of success as a player coach for the Celtic team. After losing in the Eastern Division Finals against the Sixers in 1967, the Celtics would continue their dynasty winning two more NBA titles in 1968 and in 1969 with Russell serving as the, player Celtic, as the Celtics player coach. Number two, this week in 1951, the Rochester Royals hold off the New York Knicks four games to three in the NBA Finals. This series is significant because it was the only time in NBA Finals history a team down three games to none ever forced a Game 7 in the Finals. The Royals, you of course known as the Sacramento Kings, now took a three games to none series lead, but the Knicks would rally to even the series at three games apiece, forcing the deciding seventh game. And a low-scoring defensive struggle, the Royals would slip past the Knicks 79-75 to to capture the Royals slash Kings' first and only NBA title. And the number one event in sports history this week took place in 1986. And it was the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs between the Chicago Bulls and the Boston Celtics. Most notably, Game 2. The Celtics would end up sweeping the Bulls in, a three, in three games, but NBA fans are still talking about, even to this day, the performance Michael Jordan put on in Game 2. The Bulls star scored an NBA postseason record 63 points in a Bulls 135-131 loss in double overtime to the Celtics in historic Boston Garden. The Celtics would eventually move on and win the NBA title that year as the Celtics would roll off an, an unbelievable postseason run, beating the Rockets in the finals. That year, the Celtics had this unbelievable 41-1 record at home. The only loss that year at home came to the Portland Trailblazers. But Jordan would finish that game after scoring 63, going 22 of 41 from the field, while the Celtics were counted with Larry Bird, who led the Celtics with 36, and Kevin McHale had 27. That was the top five events of this week. To recap, number five was the first games ever held for the American League and the National League. Number four was the 1942 Toronto Maple Leafs, erasing a three games to none deficit to win the Stanley Cup. Number three, Bill Russell becomes the head coach of the Boston Celtics and the first African-American to be the head coach of a pro sports team. 
Number two, the Rochester Royals hold off the New York Knicks in seven games in the NBA Finals, and Michael Jordan's incredible 63 points in game two of the 1986 Eastern Conference first round is this week's top five. And now, to conclude this, this week's show is, of course, the shout-outs. And we're talking about, this week, the only team not named the Boston Celtics to win an NBA title during the decade of the 1960s. So, stay tuned and check it out. Welcome back to this week's shout-out segment of the Historically Speaking podcast. This week's shout-out goes to the only team in the 1960s not named the Boston Celtics to win an NBA title. And they have gone on to become one of the greatest teams in NBA history. And we're talking about the 1967 Philadelphia 76ers. This week in that year, the Sixers were led by Will Chamberlain. Who, who would pretty much pace the Sixers to their very first NBA title and the second in the history of the franchise after the team had won the 1955 NBA title as the Syracuse Nationals. In 1967, the playoffs marked a change in the league's playoff format. Every t- playoff since 1955 had given the number one seed in each division a first-round bye. However, this year it would be different as the NBA increased the number of playoff teams to eight, thereby eliminating a first round bye for the regular season conference champs, where it was divisions back then. The Sixers will return to the postseason after posting a record of 68 and 13, which was the best record in NBA history at the time and the fourth most wins in an NBA regular season in the history of the league. This would be the third appearance in the postseason for the Sixers, who had moved from Philly to from had moved to Philly from Syracuse after the 1963 season. Chamberlain, of course, was the centerpiece, dominating inside with the dominating inside presence of Chamberlain. But there was also a lot of great players around him. For example, joining Chamberlain in the front court was power forward Luke Jackson, standing six foot eight, two hundred and fifty pounds, and was the prototypical power forward who dominated the interior along with Chamberlain. Another great low po- another great player that was on the front line for the Sixers was Chet the Jet Walker, who added athleticism and dead eye outside shooting. Pacing the, the offense for the Sixers was Hall of Famer Hal Greer who was just one of the great, great point guards in the decade of the 60s. And if you had to compare Hal Greer with somebody that is playing today, I would have to compare him to some to someone like a Kyrie Irving, who was kind of small in stature, but he had a thousand, thousand moves. He was a great finisher around the rim, but also he was a great, great floor leader and was adept at assists and leading an offense. Very, very well-rounded point guard. Other players on that team included Wally Jones, who was another great outside shooter. And coming off the bench would be a pair of really great athletic players who would become 
big contributors for that 76ers team. Billy Cunningham, the kangaroo kid out of the University of North Carolina, was one of them. He would later go on and be and lead the Sixers as a head coach to the night for to the 1983 now World Championship uh, for the Sixers, coaching Dr. J and Moses Malone and Mo Cheeks and that group, and also another player who wasn't really well known at the time, but if you was a basketball fan of the 1990s, you recognize the name of Matt Gukas, who was a rookie, but he would later become the lead NBA analyst for NBC when they covered the NBA during the 1990s, teaming up with Marv Albert. He was an outstanding player who was a great defensive whiz and also another dead-eye shooter. The The Sixers would open the postseason against the Cincinnati Royals, led by All-Star Oscar Robertson. And the Royals would shock Philly in Game 1, beating them 120-116. to But the Sixers would get it together, regroup, and win three in a row to end the series at three games to one. However, waiting for the Sixers in the Eastern Conference Finals would be the Boston Celtics, eight-time NBA champion, they had Bill Russell and John Havlicek, Sam Jones, Casey Jones, and the like. But the Celtics was the second-seeded team in the Eastern Conference behind the Sixers' stellar record. So they would begin the, the postseason on the road in Philadelphia, playing at the, at, playing at the uh, Philadelphia Convention Hall. Leaving nothing to chance, the Sixers went off and dominated the series like the Celtics had never, ever been dominated before the Sixers won the first three games handily one of them in Boston Garden game four trying to eliminate a sweep the Celtics would rally behind Bill Russell and John Havlicek to avoid elimination but all that did was pretty much delay the inevitable with the crowd chanting, Boston is dead, Boston is dead, the Philadelphia 76ers would route the Celtics 140-116, to ending the Celtics championship string and kind of putting a interruption, as you would say, to the Celtics string of championships and the dynasty itself. The Sixers would celebrate the feat of ending the streak of Celtic dominance, but they still had one, still had some business to take care of. And that was to face Wilk Chamberlain's former team, the San Francisco Warriors, led by two future Hall of Famers within their own right, Rick Barry and center Nate Thurman. After the Sixers won games one and two in Philly, they had to travel to San Francisco, and the Warriors will respond in a big way. In game three, led by Rick Barry's 55 points, the Warriors would knock off the, the Sixers 130 to 124. The Sixers would win game four as the Warriors would stave off elimination, winning game five in Philly. However, in game six, behind Wally Jones's 27 points, 20 of which coming in the second half. The Sixers will win their very first NBA title in Philadelphia, winning, actually it was in San Francisco, with giving the Sixers their first ever NBA title, winning 125 to 124. Many historians consider that 1967 Philadelphia 76ers as one of the great teams in NBA history, with the combined with record, with the feat of ending the Celtics eight consecutive 
NBA title streak and knocking off a very formidable San Francisco Warriors team led by two Hall of Famers that obviously would give them instant credibility as one of the great teams that the NBA had ever seen. And that would pretty much end this week's show. I'm glad you everyone enjoyed it as I was very, very thankful to bring it to you this week. And this show was really good, but just wait till the next one. I'm Dana Augusta, your host. I'll see you next week. there sports history fan this is arnie chapman aka the football history dude and i hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the sports history network and we're able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets i started the sports history network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, Fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.